Uh, we are in our series in the Gospel of John. Um, for those of you, like, just, just to remind you where we're at uh, in, in the story, we're still early-ish in the Gospel of John where Jesus' ministry is ramping up. We're at a point where Jesus is in the Galilean area. He's been doing the kinds of things that we know Jesus to do. He's been healing the sick, teaching, drawing large crowds. Um, and for this text in particular, um, it's Passover time is coming close for the second time within the narrative of the Gospel of John. And so as, uh, as the, uh, the crowds are in town getting ready for Passover, um, the, the text that we're covering today actually comes right after um, maybe one of the most famous miracles that occur in the Gospels. It's when Jesus feeds 5,000 people. Jesus feeds the, the multitude. And the, uh, in, in particular, when uh, Jesus feeds this multitude, that miracle itself is actually, it, it uh, holds unique status in the sense that uh, it occurs in all four Gospels. Um, it's rare for all four Gospels to have it. Um, the, uh, all four Gospels do um, talk about Jesus' ministry beginning in Galilee, and then the Gospels, all four of them, share a lot of, they, they discuss a lot of the same events in the last week of Jesus' life. So there's convergence at the very beginning and the very end, and not a lot of convergence in between. But this is actually one that, that stands out where it's a, it's a narrative that occurs uh, across all four Gospels. What's uh, especially interesting here is that the, what you'll see, the Gospel of John actually takes this story and adds a dimension onto it that is unique to the Gospel of John, and that's actually what we're going to spend our time talking through. It's this unique dimension that has come up. So let's, with that context in mind, uh, let's read through this ensuing discussion that happens shortly after Jesus feeds uh, the multitudes, okay? So it begins, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly I tell, tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give for you. For on him God the Father has placed God's seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one God has sent. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, God gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of God who sent me. And this is the will of God who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those that God has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. 
They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I come down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from God comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. And just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate the manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. I want to end with what the NIV actually gives us the subheading for the next section. It says, many disciples desert Jesus, which I think is good. Uh, It is fitting to think through how how is what Jesus said here translating to be so polarizing, not just among Jesus' own disciples, but but the enemies who've been uh, following Jesus around in his ministry as well. So that's what the, really the main thing that we're going to talk through today, which is what does it mean? For Jesus to say he is the bread of life. And you may have actually, you may be familiar with this uh, common like way of framing some of the, um, the, the repeated stories in the gospel of John to, to point out that we've historically said there are seven I am statements in the gospel of John. These are statements where the, the author has Jesus making a statement about this a metaphorical concept, like in this case, bread of life. And then um, the, the dialogue unpacks what that means. So this is the first of the seven I am statements that occur in the gospel. So to unpack bread of life, I think one of the things that we're going to have to address is the fact that um, many people, many interpreters throughout history have looked at this and they read passages like this and they can't help but think of that practice that we all, most of us who are here, regularly engage in week over week, which is communion, right? It's hard um, in some ways for people to read this passage and not see communion, but then other people often read this passage and it doesn't cross their mind at all. So I think we should also talk through like, well, what's, what's going on there and how, how can we think through that? The, the discussions around communion that bear or that that relate to this passage historically over the long arc of church history can actually be uh, pretty controversial there are uh, a bunch of different perspectives uh, throughout church history around uh, you know what uh, what actually happens to Jesus's presence during communion like what's going on with the the bread and the wine or juice that that you consume so and and again uh, you can have a range of reactions to, I didn't know that was a question, to, uh, how dare you not know that that's a question? The stakes are extremely high. 
some of the biggest uh, perspectives that have come out from this, uh, like one, one perspective, for example, is called consubstantiation, which is uh, a way of saying, it's a, it's a theological framework that says the bread and the juice, they coexist with Jesus' body and blood when we take communion. There's another perspective called transubstantiation, and that's the idea that the bread and juice becomes Jesus' body and blood um, when you take communion. There's another perspective called transcendentalism, where Jesus' presence transcends the, the bread and juice while we're taking it. I'm kidding. I made up that last one. Transcendentalism is a philosophy. It, it uh, doesn't have to do with this. But I think it probably speaks to the fact that these are just a lot of big words with perspectives that I don't even know whether the difference matters or not. There's actually a, an actual common third perspective that comes up uh, in these discussions called memorialism, which is actually a real word. I know you think, wait, this sounds fake. The other ones sound real. But uh, memorialism is actually, it's a theological framework that my guess is if you don't know about the other two that I mentioned, this is probably where you land. So that is this perspective that nothing inherently happens to the bread and the juice while you're taking it. Really, what you're doing is remembering Jesus' body and blood and remembering the sacrifice that he made. Nothing inherently metaphysical happening in the process. Um, probably a lot of us in the room come from traditions that are memorialist. If you were here for our lesson uh, a few weeks ago where we talked about being born of water and being born again, we talked about how um, despite the fact that throughout church history, many interpreters have, have made a tight connection between being born of water and baptism, there have been a lot of uh, Protestant movements in particular that uh, through an aversion to uh, the, the idea that like physically doing anything uh, could earn God's presence in what you're doing, that there's no possible way something could truly be metaphysically going on during baptism. And that same kind of, of aversion uh, carries over onto communion as well. I think there are, there are a, lot of, a lot of Protestant traditions that are like, yeah, yeah, it's just, uh, it's just remembering Jesus. Don't make it out to be anything more than that, as if taking communion could, uh, you know, through your effort, you could make God's grace appear uh, in that situation. But again, remember, we talked about how that is a false dichotomy. So what I'm going to ask you to do is surrender that kind of bias, and let's just be open to the possibility of thinking through, like, what actually is going on when we take communion together? There is, um, you know, if you also come from this, this kind of background where you, your primary framework is to think about it as just a, um, uh, a memorial, then your gut instinct is to read the passage that we just read and assume that Jesus is speaking metaphorically, and you may not even associate that passage we just read with communion at all. You would just say, you know, there, there are a lot of points that Jesus is making. Communion uh, would not have been on the author's mind when they constructed that, that passage. What's, uh, what's especially interesting about the Gospel of John going through this passage um, and interpreters layering on communion onto the, the uh, context here, is that the Gospel of John is actually the only Gospel account that doesn't mention like, the, like communion at all, like the actual instance of Jesus and his disciples in, the, in their last meal together, uh, breaking bread and, and commemorating, or sorry, uh, um, creating this, um, 
this ritual that we've carried on since then. And that uh, occurs, it's all the more ironic that the Gospel of John doesn't have that because the Gospel of John actually has several chapters um, that uh, are Jesus monologuing on his, during his last meal with his disciples. And yet in all of those monologues, not one mention about this communal meal that takes great uh, prominence in Jesus's final discussions in uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, and yet, even though the Gospel of John seems to be avoiding that, that approach, um, this text has always offered readers unmistakable connections to communion. So one of the ways that this can be uh, particularly challenging to think through, like this whole issue of, you know, consubstantiation, transubstantiation, whatever going on, um, I've really been enjoying the different topics that come out of uh, um, the kids' Bible class that Pastor Mark has been leading. So after uh, Bible class a few weeks ago, um, um, our toddler junior, who you just saw earlier, came out with, uh, with the communion cups that we have, and he said, this blood. And I was like, uh, and I looked at him and said, oh, is that Jesus's blood? And he said, yeah. Then he paused and he said, but blood, yucky. And so we had to work with him on his level to think through like, okay, look, is this actually Jesus's blood or not? Because is this okay to eat or not? What's going on? And I think we often can have that same level of a confusion, like, okay, like what's actually going on here? And that can be distracting. I think what we can do in our discussion is to start with what this text is actually saying and then work out from there. So they, you know, it was funny too, like shortly after that, um, Junior saw our, like a, a glass of uh, Dr. Pepper cherry, uh, zero sugar, which is also reddish. And then uh, he pointed at that and said, that's blood. And uh, I told him, no, that's not, that's actually uh, soda. But it made me think, you know, we've talked about all of the ways that churches commoditize various aspects of the church experience. I'm like, well, how come nobody's gotten on this communion uh, trademarking that and creating products around it yet? But I guess that's, that's for someone else to do. The, uh, the true connections, like the actual connections that interpreters have made throughout the years over what's going on in this John 6 passage, um, they, they can come from places like this. So we just talked about uh, how when Jesus began feeding the, the multitudes, he says, it says, Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated. That formula, Jesus takes the loaves, gives thanks, and distributes, is actually the same formula that occurs in other passages, in other gospels, to describe the communion account. And that's how the, even in the book of Acts, New Testament writers use that kind of framework to say it. So for a lot of people, when you, when you see this pattern, it evokes, the, evokes thinking around communion. Also, I mean, Jesus in, in our passage today does say, this bread is my flesh. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, which is very communion language that New Testament writers will use in other places. On top of that, you probably have um, a, you know, instinctive familiarity with associating Jesus and his death on the cross with the Passover lamb. But among the four Gospels, the Gospel of John is actually the only one that explicitly makes that connection. So in the Gospel of John, towards the beginning, so in the opening parts of the, of the book when uh, Jesus is actually first introduced, uh, John the Baptist actually sees Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. For somebody to call Jesus that during the Gospel accounts itself is unique to John. 
There's also a situation towards the end uh, of the Gospel of John where it says, now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, which is noon. And this is about, uh, this is describing the time that Jesus was being handed over to be executed. What's especially interesting here, and we, we talked about this a little bit in our communion discussion several weeks ago, is that the, the Gospel of John actually takes things out of the chronological order that the other Gospels do. Uh, one example that we've already experienced, so a few weeks ago um, when Kevin uh, spoke about Jesus uh, overturning the tables in the temple, right? That occurs in the beginning of the Gospel of John. That occurs, that same story occurs towards the end in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It actually occurs when Jesus uh, walks into town during the final week of his life. It has caused people who have very uh, narrow definitions of inerrancy or what it means for the Bible to be perfect or flawless to say that, oh, it must have been two separate events, which I think is hilarious to imagine Jesus twice in his career walking into the temple doing that and like the next time they're not going to arrest him at the door when that happens. I think what's, what's actually far more straightforward to believe and comes through in the text is that John is actually much more flexible about chronological events in Jesus's life. What you really should be doing when you see something out of chronology is asking yourself what's the significance of moving the events around. Another key chronological shift that the Gospel of John does is actually what day Jesus is handed over to be executed. So the the Gospel of John, instead of having Jesus being uh, executed on Passover, actually has Jesus being executed during the preparation for Passover around the same time that the Passover lambs would have been sacrificed to get ready for the meal. That's how much John cares about making this connection between the Passover lamb that he will shift the, the timeline around. There is um, the, the, uh, another way of just showing or like really uh, like letting it sink in the type of connection interpreters have made over the years is to look at artwork. So there is a, a ton of artwork um, from like cave paintings and catacombs, things like that in the early church that show us so much about how, to, uh, how, how early interpreters thought about some of these passages that we've been talking about so far. Um, the, you know, this, it's a great example, actually, of you know, when you think of art that followers of Jesus has made, have made over the centuries, um, it is worth scrutinizing uh, what, what they're saying and doing and going below it to see what the assumptions are, right? I'm, I'm looking at you, white Jesus with brown hair, blue eyes, like, you know, how, how do we get to that kind of artwork? being so pervasive. So here, this is actually an example of a painting found in a catacomb in early second century, okay? So we're talking about a time frame not very long at all after something like the Gospel of John would have been written, and you already see artwork like this. Now, I think that's, maybe that's hard to tell what's actually going on there, but we can, we can walk through it here, okay? So one is that that is bread. So those are the, the loaves of bread in this picture, right? So you see it looks like about seven people sitting around uh, a table. And then um, the, there is the cup. It's like a two, two-handle cup that would have been the, the fruit of the vine. Um, a couple, uh, one other thing I would actually like to call is that's a woman. 
And that is significant because that is showing in early artwork the participation and inclusion of women in the early Jesus movement being there alongside the men in partaking of the, the Lord's Supper. It's, uh, you know, it does something that 16, 1,500 years later, uh, Da Vinci's Last Supper doesn't do. Uh, which is more accurately convey the presence of women in the early Jesus movement. There are, there are debates, some people would even argue, based on the way the woman is positioned, that, that she may actually be presiding over the, the Lord's Supper, and so they're the ones who, who are basically the, functionally the leader of it. Um, you know, that, that can be up for debate, but the consensus is that is a woman who is present, and that's significant. So I just needed to take a minute to call that out and route to the, the other points that, that we're making. Uh, also, it looks like I think these are plants from the plant swap that their church had probably right before uh, they gathered for communion. Now, that's actually, it, uh, I think it's that those are other artworks. Like, so on that side to the left and to the right, um, we're just focusing on the, the part in the middle. But the, the thing that's of significance here is that that in the middle is fish. So this painting, and many, many like it, uh, very early in the Jesus movement and for centuries after, were paintings of Eucharist or the communion experience. And yet here you have a couple fish on the table as well. You probably take, when, to the extent that you do, when you take communion week after week after week, you probably don't think about the story of Jesus feeding the multitude or Jesus feeding the multitude with fish and loaves. And yet that was a connection that they made because to them, what Jesus did when he fed the multitude and what we do every week in communion were very tightly connected. They couldn't think about the, or they couldn't express an artwork, the, well, the one event, without also uh, talking about the other. And th this kind of conflation was deliberate. They're making connections about what it means for Jesus to be present during a meal, and they're rolling with it. And I think we actually can uh, benefit from taking that kind of uh, expansive vision towards communion as well, to, to see in this meal that we take week after week and look for the connections that it has with other kinds of meals that we have throughout our life. Um, a great example coming up uh, as part of this weekend, for those of you who celebrate Juneteenth and especially the like, foods and drinks that are associated with it, you know that uh, red is an important color, is a theme in Juneteenth celebration. And the, one of the, the reasons behind that is it's a, it's a symbol and a commemoration of the blood and the persecution and perseverance that enslaved peoples went through uh, to get to where we are today. And you, as a follower of Jesus, who might also be celebrating Juneteenth, would look at that and say, yes, that makes perfect sense. It makes so much sense to make that kind of connection. So when we engage in these kinds of meals and we're making these kinds of connections, I think that should kind of help us frame like, what, is, what are uh, additional depths of richness that I can get from this meal? There's, an, uh, there's another level too here that, that um, Jesus kind of raises the stakes when uh, his, uh, the people that he's debating with bring up manna in, uh, in heaven. So before we get into that, I think it it's helps to kind of just anchor ourselves you know, if, if you have been following along so far and you're asking, well, so what are the, like, the metaphysical mechanics of how the bread and juice represents Jesus, um, Jesus' body and blood? And what I would say is I'm not sure that this text that we're reading through today is trying to answer that question. But if you were to ask the question, is Jesus present 
during communion? I think what I would say is absolutely. There is no reason to think that he's not. Why not be more expansive? I would say wherever anyone is hungry, physically, mentally, spiritually, or emotionally, Jesus is there. In fact, you read the Gospels and you get the impression that there's no place Jesus would rather be than in a meal with people who are hungry in whatever kind of hunger they're experiencing. That is, I think, what John 6 is actually trying to tell us, and we can take it in all kinds of directions from there. It's, it's often the case then that we kind of look back at the, um, like, we think about what, what was so polarizing about what Jesus was saying, and we kind of have this, uh, th- this story in our minds where we say, um, oh, you know, what was tripping them up is that uh, Jesus was speaking, uh, they, they, they couldn't follow whether Jesus was speaking literally or metaphorically, right? Like, that's the idea. Uh, same thing with the born of water discussion that we had with uh, where Jesus and Nicodemus talked several weeks ago. The, that's like to say that that was what was tripping them up, whether to take Jesus literally or metaphorically, I think does a disservice to just like thinking people everywhere as if their culture and the original audience and the writers did not have the capacity to discern whether Jesus would be speaking metaphorically or literally in that case. That's not what's tripping them up. The thing that's tripping up the original audience here uh, wasn't whether to take, like, how to, the the layer of linguistics to interpret Jesus. What was polarizing was the product itself. What I mean by that is that Jesus was saying, he's the bread of life. That's what was tripping them up. They didn't like the look of the bread that Jesus was presenting to them. That was the problem. They, their approach would have been, you know, how is, how is this, we're looking at Jesus, the, how is that bread of life? It's not very Moses-like, is it? Like, that's the idea, right? They, they, uh, that original audience had expectations of what a hero of Israel should look like and act like. And they would even say, that's why they would say, I know your mom and dad. I know where you're from. Not very Moses-like to me, is it? And what Jesus is having to do is to reframe their entire way of understanding what it means to love and what it means for God to be victorious around bread of life being broken to feed everyone who's hungry. So this discussion uh, really uh, sharpens when they talk about, well, hey, we had, we had manna when we were in the wilderness, right? So this is uh, a callback to a time when uh, early in Israel's history, they were in uh, the wilderness and God preserved them by giving them manna to eat, bread from heaven. And what the, uh, the audience in Jesus's day are saying like, no, that's, that's bread of life. I know what bread of life looks like. That's how you win. And Jesus is saying, no, that kind of bread you can eat and you will die again. If you fail to recognize the bread of life that's in front of you, you will have missed the point. That is what he's pushing the audience to work through there. And the comparisons to previous heroes in Israel's history is telling. Keep that in mind. You'll see it come up again in other passages throughout the Gospel of John. All kinds of heroes will be brought up. Abraham, David, and they're constantly evaluating Jesus to see whether he measures up to their idea of what greatness means for Israel. The comparisons that they make are telling because they, you know, they, uh, there are a lot of uh, different ideas that they have about heroes that we really still have today. I think we like to think that if, uh, that if Jesus 
presented his leadership vision to us today, we would be fully on board. The reality is our culture, we all, we're saturated with ideas of heroes that are not that different from them. We want somebody tough. We want someone to destroy our enemies. We don't call it freedom until we, we, are, we can rise up over the people who have hurt us and humiliated us. That's, that's, how, that's how we think about it today. That's how they think about it. Even, um, you know, there, even when you think about Father's Day, there, there are many, many things and messages that I love about Father's Day. But when it comes to Father's Day and Mother's Day too, you hear a lot of takes about heroism and masculinity that uh, really tell us more about the toxic ways that we think people are supposed to be heroes than anything Jesus uh, ever would, would have us think about how, like what, it, what it actually means to be a leader. There is a, a, a way, too, that Jesus has of just deconstructing simple concepts that we encounter in our day-to-day lives, like water, bread, light, words, dwelling, where Jesus takes those elements He grounds them in him to say that the clearest representation of who God is can be found in Jesus. There are, you know, the the Gospel of John here is making a very clear case that Jesus is the real manna. But there are other kinds of words and concepts that we've been dealing with so far, right? There are many words that God has spoken. But the way the Gospel of John frames it and other New Testament writers run with the clearest word that God has ever spoken is Jesus. There are many places you can find God's presence, but the walking, talking embodiment of who God is, is Jesus. That's why there is a discussion about Jesus overturning the temple early in the gospel of John. The world is full of bright lights, but the gospel of John is pushing you to consider that Jesus is the brightest light that has ever passed through your eyeballs. There are many kinds of love, and ways to show love, but Jesus is the Passover lamb who shows us what real love looks like, the kind of love that actually destroys evil by absorbing evil. There are many things that are beautiful and true, but the most beautiful, truest thing the gospel of John has ever known is Jesus. Later in the gospel of John, towards the very end, Pontius Pilate, a ruler over the area, is looking at Jesus next to him, is making a decision about the, uh, the, the fate of Jesus and what's going to happen to him. When he looks at Jesus, he asks a question, what is truth? The Gospel of John has been preparing us all the way to get to that point where you see that when Pontius Pilate is asking that question, he doesn't realize that the bloody, chained person that he's looking at is actually the face of truth enemy-loving truth that he is handing over to be executed. There are many true things that we may see and know and learn in life, but the Gospel of John is asking us to think through that Jesus is the truest thing that you can ever experience. If you want to know who God is, look at Jesus first and look at Jesus last. That is what the Gospel of John presents as real flesh, real blood, and real love. This is our uh, part of our time together where, where fittingly, we will take communion. So this is, uh, we're going to re- go through a tradition that New Testament writers have shared building on this, uh, this, um, this ritual that, that we all share together. 
For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving, to, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given from you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after sucker, supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And as we talked about, the table of Jesus, the bread that he offers, is expansive. Think big about who is welcome and who can partake.